0: Dalton, Georgia is a uh, mid-sized town just about 30 minutes south of Chattanooga, Tennessee, so it's only about two hours from here. It is best known, of course, as the home of the floor covering industry, uh, often been called the carpet capital of the world. Some uh, 85 plus percent of the carpet sold in America is made within a 50 or 60 mile radius of that city. At one point, it was known for having the most millionaires per capita of any uh, city in America. My mom lives in Dalton, Georgia. She is not one of those aforementioned millionaires. If she is, she's hiding it very well, but uh, to my knowledge, she is not. She was born there and raised there, and she now has returned there in her uh, latter years. But Dalton, Georgia, is also most recently home to a ministry called His Name is Flowing Oil. Strange name for a ministry, isn't it? Well, it's a strange ministry. About four or five years ago, there was a small group of friends that began meeting for prayer services. They weren't affiliated with a church per se. They were just professing believers who began to meet for prayer services. And then in January of 2017, so just over three years ago, one of the, the men in the group noticed that his Bible had a spot of oil on it. And then it increased And his Bible began to flow with oil. And so he put the Bible in a bucket so that it could continue to flow with the oil. And now some three years later, after they would fill up the bucket with the oil, they would take it and pour it into small little vials. They have given away 350,000 vials of this oil. Some 400 gallons of oil have come from this Bible of his that is flowing with oil. As you can imagine, people have come from all over the country. Every Tuesday morning, there is a service that they hold there in the city in an old theater in downtown Dalton, and people come from all over the place to see this Bible that is flowing with oil and to get a vial of the oil, some of them testifying that this oil has healed them miraculously. And so they have, of course, taken this ministry on the road. Other churches want to be a part of this, and so they have taken this Bible and gone all over the country where they are invited to come, funded, of course, by donations for their ministry. Just a few weeks ago, the Chattanooga Times Free Press decided to do an article about this ministry. They got a vial of the oil, and they sent it to a professor at UT Chattanooga to test it. And that professor discovered that the the oil that they were giving away is not exactly like, but almost exactly like mineral oil, having very much the same qualities of common mineral oil. And then an anonymous source said that one of the men involved in this ministry was a frequent customer of the tractor supply store in Dalton, where two managers at the tractor supply store visually verified that indeed this was the man who had been coming into the store for years buying large quantities of mineral oil. And so after the Chattanooga Times Free Press did this article, another miracle occurred. The Bible stopped flowing with oil. And so the ministry has now given away all the oil that they have. The Bible is no longer producing oil. And so they have canceled all of their future speaking and traveling engagements. And this is no joke. Now, the latest is in Cleveland, Tennessee, which is just about 25 miles up the road from Dalton, there is another church where a guitar is flowing with oil. And it will not surprise any of us to know that there is a connection between these two ministries. Some of the people in the ministry in Georgia are also involved in this particular church in Cleveland. Deception is all around us. Scams targeting people. Primarily for their money, you, you see these come across your emails, you read about them in the paper. In fact, I was on the website of one of our local news channels this morning, did not read the articles, just glanced at the headlines, and in those headlines, there were two warnings about scams. The word "scam" occurred in two headlines. One was a scam concerning the coronavirus and a potential cure, and the other was about some sort of court document, some sort of public court documents where people are being coerced to giving money thinking that they have some sort of lawsuit or file against them. These kind of things are all around us from the secular world and also in the spiritual world. People want to believe these kinds of things, and so they are susceptible. And in the secular world, it is usually our money. In the spiritual world, it could be far worse. That is, we could come across people who are trying to deceive us about who Jesus is and what he has or has not accomplished on our behalf. And we might wind up not just losing some money, we might wind up losing our very faith. And that is what John is dealing with in this first epistle. This morning, we're going to look at a rather difficult passage of Scripture. In fact, we, we've made the case that, that John's letter is one of the more simpler letters in the New Testament. John is very simple and clear. He is very straightforward in the things he says, sometimes so much so that we really don't like what he says. And As I reminded you, this is the, the book of the Bible that first-year Greek students invariably go through because it is the easiest Greek in all of the New Testament, And yet we've come to a passage this morning that is not very easy. It is is a little bit more difficult than what we are used to here. And there are many things we could talk about here, but we're going to try to confine ourselves to the topic of defending against deception. That is, there are all kinds of scams in the spiritual world seeking ultimately, whether they mean to or not, but seeking ultimately to lead us away from the sufficiency we find in Christ, putting our attention on something else rather than Jesus. And we need to not only beware of these things, we need to know how to defend against them. So let's look at 1 John chapter 2, and I'll begin reading in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you, you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it And this is the promise he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. There it is. He's writing because there are some who are trying to deceive them. Verse 27, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is not and is no lie, Just as it has taught you, abide in him. As I said, that's a mouthful, really. It seems like it's sort of a circular argument going back and forth, saying some of the same things over and over again. And so we're going to bounce around in this text trying to understand the overriding topic here and ideas behind that topic, and that is defending against deception. Now, the first thing we need to see this morning is the presence of Antichrist. That is, if we are going to acknowledge that there is the possibility of deception, it begins with acknowledging that there are those out there who are seeking to deceive us. Now, this is one of those topics that people want to talk about, isn't it? This is one of those topics that people want to know more about. In fact, if I would have done a little better job on marketing this sermon, had I put the title out on the the marquee there on the highway, and I would have included the name Antichrist in the title, I dare say we would have more people here this morning, because people want to know more about the Antichrist. In fact, had I gone even further and said, not only am I going to talk about the Antichrist, but I am going to perhaps name him. This place probably, if I'd have got the message out, this place would be full this morning. If I would have said, I know who the Antichrist is, and I'm going to reveal that this morning. In fact, had I gone even one step further than that and said, not only do I know who the Antichrist is, but he or she might actually be a member of Beaver Dam Baptist Church, Some of you would have started thinking about names. I know who he's talking about. There have always been those who have claimed to know who the Antichrist is. Nero was the Antichrist. Napoleon was the Antichrist. Even Martin Luther, the great reformer, was deemed by some of his opponents to be the Antichrist. And ever since then, there have been presidents and popes who for whatever reason, have been deemed by those who do not like them as the Antichrist. I do not know who the Antichrist is. In fact, John is not even talking about that kind of Antichrist. He is not talking about the one who is going to come at the end. He is talking about something else entirely. You notice our text begins with that familiar word again, that term of endearment, children. But then it goes right into this statement, it is the last Hour. And he repeats that again at the end of that particular verse. This is how we know it is the last hour. So how do we know it is the last hour? He is talking about the fact that some have gone out of the church. The presence of the Antichrist shows that it is now the last hour. Now, what does that mean? John wrote this over 2,000 years ago. And so 2,000 years ago, he says it's the last hour. And here we are 2,000 years later, and we're reading that it's the last hour. So, was he wrong, or what does that mean? Well, most scholars believe that that phrase and others like it in the New Testament really refer to the entire what we might call the church age. That is the age between the first coming of Christ and the future second coming. Whenever that second coming of Christ is going to be, that entire time frame between the first coming and the second coming is the last hour, the last days. Now, the New Testament writers lived with a sense of imminency, and we should as well with a a belief that Christ is coming soon and might in fact come in our lifetime. And there is nothing wrong with living in that manner and thinking in that way. And so John acknowledges that we are in that time as he was and so he's going to provide us yet another test. We've already talked about the test of righteousness. That is how we live our lives. The false teachers were saying that they knew God And yet they were walking in darkness. And John says, if you're walking in darkness and not in light, you do not know God. We've talked about the test of love. That is, the false teacher said they knew God, but they did not love fellow believers. And so John says that if you hate your brothers and sisters in Christ, then you do not know God. Today we are talking about what we might call the test of truth. Or the test of perseverance. Both of those are adequate ways uh, to describe this. That is the, the fact that we know the truth and we are to continue to live in the truth. Now, it may surprise you to learn that the word Antichrist is only found five times in Scripture. And all five of those are in 1st or 2 John. Every instance of this word is found in either the letter we're studying or the next letter that John also wrote. This word is not found in Daniel. This word is not found in Revelation. In Paul's letters, he talks about the man of sin or the lawless one. Revelation talks about the beast. Those are terms that are similar, but they're not the same. John is the only one who uses the word antichrist. Now, you might see very readily there that this is a compound word. It's a prefix, anti, and the term, the title, Christ. The prefix for anti can either mean the opposite of or opposed to or instead of. So if it means instead of, what we're talking about here is false Christ. That is, there will come some who will think and proclaim that they are, in fact, Christ, that they are in the place of Christ. Jesus himself said, false Christ and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive, there's that word again, to deceive, if possible, even the elect. And while that is true, that is, that's a valid use of the word, that is not the way John is using it here. John is using the term to talk about those who are opposed to or against Christ. And if you notice in verse 18, the second time the word is used, it is in the plural. He says, You know that Antichrist is coming, but I'm telling you, even now, there are many Antichrists, plural. So when I talk about the presence of antichrists, I'm talking about the fact that there are plural antichrists. They were present in John's time, and they are present in our own time. And so I want to say three things. Our our leader back here is anxious to get out, so he's already given you the first two. But we're not there yet. He's in a hurry. So we're going to back up. How do we know about these antichrists? The presence of Antichrist. Number one, John says they've departed Christ's church. That is, they have left the body of Christ. That's why I jokingly said earlier, it is possible that on our church rolls, there are Antichrists. I do not mean to name anybody. I'm not trying to conjure up in your mind uh, any particular individual. But if it was true in John's day, it is also true in our own day. Verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. And again, if you've not been with us, you know that behind this whole letter is the the context of a group of people who have left this church or group of churches to form another body. And we'll see in a moment that what they believe is a very serious error but they have left and they are trying to convince the people who have stayed that they are right and the ones who remain behind are wrong. But John is saying, no, they left. They've departed Christ's church and as a result, they are in fact anti-Christ. Again, I know that's harsh, but that is not my terminology. That is John's. Now, John is not saying, I want to clear up maybe some things you might go to in your mind. John is not saying that you and I are okay as long as we leave our name on the church roll. We have the idea of departing Christ's church, meaning we don't belong to a church. So as long as I leave my name on the roll, then I'm okay. And there are, of course, many people in various churches and various denominations across our southern United States who think in that manner, who want to leave their name on a church roll. They don't want to take it off. The church dare not take it off because there is a correlation in their minds between the name on a church roll and what the Bible calls the Lamb's Book of Life. That is, as long as my name is on a church roll somewhere, I'm a member, then I know that I'm okay with God and my name is in His book as well. John is not talking about you can leave the church. That is, you can quit coming, you can quit serving, you can quit giving, you can quit fellowshipping, but as long as you leave your name on the roll, you are perfectly fine. That is not what he's dealing with. Secondly, he is also not dealing with leaving to go to another denomination. So, invariably, there will be the jokes, well, The Antichrists are those who have left the Southern Baptist Church, and now they're Methodists, or now they're Presbyterians, or now they're Church of God. That is not what we are talking about. So you might enjoy the jokes, but that's not the point of, of what we're talking about this morning. Leaving this church or one like it for a church of another denomination, as long as that other denomination is solid in the fundamentals of their faith, that is they are proclaiming the pure gospel and they do believe in the deity of Christ, then John is not saying you are somehow an antichrist because you're no longer a Baptist, but now you're a Presbyterian. So let's just get that straight that that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about people who have left the church, they have... Uh, departed from Christ's church, either for no church at all, that is, they've given up on it altogether, or for a heretical, or what we might call a cult. And that is what we are talking about here specifically in this case. So in departing from Christ's church, they have secondly disclosed their identity. Verse 19, they went out from us, and in doing so, they have proven or made plain that they are not of us. That is, they used to be part of us, but the very fact that they departed Christ's church has now disclosed their identity. They have proven who they really are by what they have done. And John is trying to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that those who have remained in the church are God's people, and those who have left because of the reasons they have left, which we'll get to in a moment, have proven that they are not. So if you choose to depart from the church of Christ, you are disclosing the truth that you really don't belong to Christ. They left in order that who, they are really, who their identity is might be manifested. Well, you might ask yourself, well, how do they get involved in the church in the first place? If in departing they have disclosed their identity and their identity is they do not belong to Christ, how did they get involved in the church community in the first place? The fact of the matter is, is it is easy to do for a short period of time to think, act, look, and talk like a believer, but ultimately the test of perseverance proves whether or not you are genuine or you are not. Now, you know that at the end of our service, we have what we call a hymn of invitation. That is, we invite people to respond to the message they have heard. That response is often in multiple ways. Number one, you might come forward and say, you know what? I do not know Jesus as my Savior and Lord. I need to be saved. And so you want to come and talk to somebody about what it means to be saved. Sometimes it means that people are already saved, but they've never been baptized. And so they come forward and they say, I want to be baptized so that I can become a part of this church. Or thirdly, that is the third thing, you can join the church, whether that's by transfer of letter, whether that's by a statement, or whether that is through baptism, you come to join the church. Now, all of that takes place at the end of our service in just a very few short minutes because we know at that point you're ready to go. You're probably ready to go now. But at that point, you're clearly ready to go. And so we, we try to hurry that part up. But what you may not know is more times than not, we've already talked to that person or that couple behind the scenes. They've expressed interest to us. We've tried to set up a meeting with them. We've already talked to them. If we haven't, we will try to do that afterwards. In other words, we're trying on the front end to make sure as best we can, without knowing the hearts of people, we're trying on the front end to make sure that everyone who comes into the body is a genuine believer. That's why we call it regenerate church membership. In other words, you cannot be a member of this church unless you first understand that you are a sinner in need of salvation and Christ is that Savior and you have confessed that and repented of your sins and trusted in him and then followed through in believer's baptism. Those are the requirements to be a member of this church. And so we try to make sure that people understand that before they join to avoid the very problem that John is dealing with here in 1 John. Though because we cannot know people's hearts, that is never a foolproof plan. So John is saying there are some antichrists, those who are opposed to Christ, who have gone out of the church, that is, they have departed Christ's church, and in doing that, they have disclosed their true identity. And here's the crux of the matter. They have denied Christ's deity. That is the real problem here that is going on. These are not individuals who have left because someone hurt their feelings. These are not people who have left because the church hired a new staff member who they didn't like. This is not people who have left over financial issues or leadership issues or personal conflicts with other people in their small group. These are people who have left because they are denying the very deity of Jesus Christ. And that's why John calls them anti christs Because they do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. And this is a very serious matter. Verse 22... Who is a liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Now we do not know exactly how they were doing this. We don't know all of the details about their unorthodox beliefs and teaching. But we do know that in some way they were saying that Jesus is not the Son of God. He is not God and therefore he is not Lord and Savior. And that's a serious issue. That is a tier one doctrine that if you deny that, then it doesn't matter what else you believe because you're wrong. In fact, I well remember Adrian Rogers, the pastor of Bellevue Baptist, talking about how we ought to be able to handle those who come knocking at our door. You do know that there are people who are going to occasionally knock on your door and they are coming with a different gospel. They might have a Bible in their hands that looks very similar to yours. They might have words coming out of their mouth that, looks, that, lists, that sounds very similar to what you might say. But ultimately, they are coming with a different gospel. And Adrian Rogers always would tell us, go to the heart of the matter as quickly as you can, and that is, what do they believe about Christ? Because if they deny that Jesus is God then it doesn't matter what else they're right about. They are wrong about the main thing. And that's what John is dealing with here. They are denying Christ's deity, and that is the reason that they are anti-Christ. So if we are going to defend against deception, spiritual deception, we've got to understand that there are people like this who were not just in John's time, but in our time. And again, I'm not giving giving us the idea that we ought to start naming them. I'm simply saying that we ought to be aware of the fact that there are those who oppose and who are against Christ. Well, then what do we do about that? How do we defend against deception? Well, secondly, we notice the possession of the believer. You know, sometimes people ask me, can believers be possessed? And the answer is absolutely. In fact, every believer is possessed. Not by a demon, and that's what people mean when they ask the question. They, they're really asking, can a believer be possessed by a demon? And the answer is no, we cannot be possessed by a demon because we're already possessed by something else, or someone else, I should say, and we are possessed by the Spirit. Every single believer possesses the Spirit. John says in verse 20, you have an anointing from the Holy One. And most commentators believe that that anointing refers to the Holy Spirit. So rather than having the spirit of the Antichrist who works in some people such that they depart, disclose, and deny, we have the Holy Spirit of God working within us as true believers. And this is fundamental. That is, this is the basics for knowing how to defend ourselves against deception. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would come upon people periodically. That is, it would come and it would go. It would come upon someone for a specific task or a specific moment, and then it might depart. But in the New Testament, the Bible tells us that the Spirit of God comes upon believers at the moment they are saved, never to depart, which is one of the reasons. There are others, but it's one of the reasons we believe in this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints, or more commonly, once saved, always saved. Because we believe that when when you and I profess faith in Christ genuinely, we possess the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God never departs from us, and greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. Therefore, one of the key things we possess in order to defend against deception is the Spirit of God within us. But that's not all. We not only possess the Spirit, secondly, we possess the truth. Now, there's some strange, not strange, but difficult wording here Verse 20, the King James Version says, and you know all things. In verse 20, the ESV says, you have all knowledge. And when you combine those kinds of statements with the statement in verse 27, and you do not need anyone to teach you, there are the possibilities of a host of wrong interpretations here. You say, what is John saying? Is John saying that because I now have the spirit of God, I don't need you to teach me anything and vice versa, because you have the spirit of God, you don't need me to teach you anything. Therefore, we, we can all go off on our own. We do not need one another. We are autonomous Christians who do not need the body of Christ nor fellow believers because we have the spirit of God and the spirit of God is going to teach us absolutely everything that we will ever need. Is that what John is saying? The answer is no. Well, you say, how do you know that? How do you know that that is what that means there? Well, because John is writing a letter. And what is he doing in this letter? He is teaching them. He says, I'm writing to you so that you will not be deceived. And this entire letter is a letter of teaching, as is all of the other New Testament letters. So the New Testament is filled with teaching that clearly we need. Furthermore, the New Testament talks about people having the gift of teaching and preaching. And the implication is that if some people have the gift of teaching and preaching, there are others who need to listen and learn from it. So don't get the mistaken idea here that all you need is the Spirit of God and you don't need anybody else. You don't need to come to church. You don't need to listen. You don't need to read. You don't need to do anything because you have the Spirit. That is not what John is talking about. We have to understand these kinds of statements, any kind of statement for that matter, in its context. And in its context, John is talking about the deity of Christ. These false teachers are denying Christ's deity, but John is saying to his listeners, to his recipients, you know the truth. Not that you know everything, although we know people who think they know everything. That's not what John is saying. He says, in this matter, in this context, when it comes to the deity of Christ, you know this. I don't have need to teach you of this anymore. I am going to remind you, and the Bible is very clear, that we need reminders from time to time. And so he is reminding them of this truth. And that does not mean that the Holy Spirit does not teach us. The Holy Spirit certainly does. But the Holy Spirit's what we might call subjective teaching is always, always in line with the objective teaching of God's Word. That is, the Holy Spirit teaching us within always lines up with the Word of God. And if you find that it doesn't, you're not hearing from the Holy Spirit. Or if you hear someone say to you, well, I know what the Bible says, but the Spirit told me, you need to run as quickly as possible. Because that is not the Spirit's teaching. The Holy Spirit of God does teach us, but the Holy Spirit of God teaches us in accordance with the Word of God such that these two things always agree. So John says, we possess the Spirit, and we also possess the truth. But then thirdly, he says, we possess the Son. Verse 23, those who profess Jesus as Christ have not only the Son, they have also the Father. This is a joint package. It is a package deal. Again, the false teachers were saying that they knew God, and yet they were denying Christ. And John is saying you cannot say you know God as Father if you are saying that Jesus is not God. These two come together. But to us he is saying you actually possess not only the Spirit of God and not only the truth of God, but you possess the very Son of God, and I could add the Father as well because these two things go together. This is what we possess in order to defend against the deception that comes our way. The greatest way to defend against deception is to so know the truth that deception is easy to spot. And we can know the truth because we have the Word of God and the Spirit of God and the Son of God and the truth of God and the Father all rolled up into one, which is tremendous possessions to arm us against deception. And so we need to move on to our third point, and that is the place of the believer. We've seen what we possess. Now we need to see where we ought to reside so that we continue to fight against deception that comes our way. And here is where we see this phrase that we are to remain in Christ. Some of your translations may say abide. Seven times in this text, if we include verses 28 and 29, which I've cut off and we will use next week. But if we include those verses, seven times in this text, the word remain or abide is found here. So what does it mean to abide or remain in Christ? This is something we've talked about before, but it's something that bears repeating. Well, I'm going to pull from John's famous passage in John chapter 15, where it's given us the most extensive view of what it means to remain in Christ. And there, the Bible tells us that we need to remain. This is the place of the believer. We remain in Christ so that we can bear fruit, stay connected to Christ in order that we might bear fruit. In John 15, it is the famous, I am the vine, you are the branches. That's one of Jesus' I am statements. There's eight of them in John, and that's one of them. Jesus says, I am the vine. Now, again, not literally. We know that Jesus is not literally a vine. He's using figurative language. He's using imagery. And so he says, I'm the vine. You are the branches. What's the responsibility of the branch? It is to remain connected to the vine. If it is not connected to the vine, the branch gets no nutrients and it dies. So if you go hiking or you're just walking around in your backyard, you are likely to find uh, some branches that have fallen off the tree, some, some branches that are now dead because they are not connected to that tree any longer. And that's a picture of you and I if we do not remain in Christ. That's what Jesus is saying. In fact, it is in that text where he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Because if we do not stay connected, we will not produce fruit. And in fact, I think that's a key to the fruitlessness of the lives of many believers and in the lives of many churches. It's not a matter of we don't have the right programs. It is not a matter of all the culture and its impact upon us. Those are symptoms of a bigger disease. And the disease is we are not remaining in Christ because only as we remain in Christ will we bear fruit. Secondly, again, this comes from John 15. Remaining in Christ results in answered prayer. You say, I like the sound of that. Did you know that your commitment to God's word and to remain in it does, in fact, affect your prayer life? John 15, Jesus said, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you will and it will be given to you. Now, you say, I like the sound of that. I'm going to start reading my Bible because that sounds good. The more I read my Bible, the more my prayers are going to be answered, and then I'm going to get what I want. Well, not exactly. It's not exactly what that means. Here's what it means. It means the more that we abide or remain in the Word, the more that we abide or remain in Christ, the more we are transformed. That is, the more my thoughts and my desires and my wishes begin to conform to the will of God and therefore it changes my prayer life. I'm praying about different things now because I'm being continually transformed into the likeness of Christ so that my will is increasingly becoming more in common with his will and as a result my prayers are changed and as my prayers are changed they come in more accord with the will of God and therefore they are increasingly being answered. you see how that works? It is not a promise that you will get anything you want, but it is a promise that as you are transformed by remaining in Christ into his likeness, your prayers are going to change and therefore the answers are going to change. And then thirdly, staying in love resulting in obedience. That is something we've been talking about the last two weeks, so I'm not going to belabor that this morning. But as we remain in Christ, we remain in his love. That is, we grow in a deeper knowledge of his love for us and our resulting love for him, and all of that results in obedience. Obedience is something we are obviously commanded to do, and therefore sometimes we do it begrudgingly. But as we are transformed, it ought to more and more become our desire and our delight to be obedient to God. So that increasingly, I'm not being obedient because I have to, I'm being obedient because I want to, because I know the love of God for me, and I am growing in my love for him, resulting in a desire to please him by the way I live my life. So all of that is remaining in Christ, and then very quickly, we need to see that another place for us is to rest in his promise. We see this in verse 25 where he says very clearly, and this is the promise that he made to us, and that promise is eternal life. That is the promise of God that overrides or or is the umbrella for all of the other promises that we will have eternal life. That's a promise for our future, and it is also a promise for our present And we'll talk more about this next week as we finish up this chapter and move on to the first few verses of chapter 3. But we need to know our place is to remain in Christ and rest, find peace and rest in his promises that he has given you and me who by faith have trusted in him eternal life. There are going to be deceptions that come our way. Some may be easier to spot than others. I mean, I think for me it's pretty easy to spot a Bible flowing with oil is not all it's cracked up to be. But there are other deceptions, like those who come knocking at your door, trying to convince you that their belief in Jesus is closer to truth than yours is, and yet they are denying the deity of Jesus Christ. They sound good, they look good, they have some some good words to say, and they're going to offer you peace and all these other things, but ultimately, they are denying the deity of Christ, and so they are deceivers, and you and I need to be aware of that. And the best way to guard against it is to so know the truth and who we are in Christ, to know that we have the Spirit of God within us and the truth of God around us, and we have the Son of God, to know these things so completely that when deception comes, we can spot it and we can say, no, that is not the truth, and I'm not going to fall prey to that. Friends, this is a serious matter. This is not something to trifle with. This is something that is not just potentially going to take a few dollars out of your bank account, but this is something that can damage and indeed even destroy your faith if we're not careful. And that is why we must be on guard and defend against these deceptions at this highest of level. That is the fundamentals of our faith. Again, we're not talking about second and third tier issues that we can agree to disagree on. We're talking about the very core of who Christ is, what he's come to do, and therefore how we can be saved through him. And in those areas, we must defend against deception.